about uh, my experience of sabbatical. Um, first of all, sabbatical, for those who don't know, sabbatical just means a time of rest. Um, I learned that it came into fashion for university teachers back in the 1800s uh, as a way to give professors and staff a, a break, but also a time to dive deeper into their areas of study or, or to branch out into other areas of interest. And um, I took a four month sabbatical of sorts that wasn't wouldn't fit the bill for a traditional academic sabbatical by any stretch of the imagination, but I called it such so. Um, and for this talk i'm taking my inspiration from a minister who gave a talk on his own break his summer break um, i heard it back in august um, it was reverend james uh, kubal komodo and he titled his talk disconnecting to reconnect and it was in very inspiring for me. So I'm riffing off of him. In that sermon, um, as I said, he reflected on his own summer break, how important it was for him. And so my riff is instead of disconnecting to reconnect, I'm calling this stepping back in order to step in. So rewinding a bit, as many of you know, back in 2021, I had a major abdominal surgery. I had an 18 inch water bottle size piece of my intestines removed. And leading up to that, in the previous few years, I had at least eight major infections requiring antibiotics. That same year, 2021, I began, we began fostering our then four and a half year old. And later that year, my mom died after a long battle with dementia. So it was a tough year to say the least. In 2022, it became clear that my dad's health was also in jeopardy. Dana began her new job, her dream job, and the honeymoon phase was over with our new princess. All of this to say with the backdrop of the pandemic. We were lucky though, we didn't get COVID until the following fall. And that too was its own experience. I think it was sandwiched between two colds and about a flu and a case of RSV that sent me to the emergency room with an ear infection that I hadn't experienced since I was a child. I'm not saying all this to get your sympathy because I know many of you and I know many of you have gone through much worse. 
I'm saying this because this is how life is. This is what life's about. I share with th this with you because when last June rolled around, it was time for me to take a break. You could say my useful shelf life had passed. I did my best to hold it together. But one thing I've learned about myself over the decades, but not well enough apparently, is that I do have a short shelf life. Three or so years is usually what I get before I need a change, a shift. I don't like that about myself, but that's just the way it is. Um, it wasn't a needed break just because of my health problems or family, new family situation. Another thing I know about myself is that when I get into something, I get into it. And so this is true with teaching. I began teaching in 2016 before I came to North Carolina. I ignored the traditional Rinzai Zen way of doing things, which is a period of time called the sacred embryo. It's a time when new teachers will after giving given permission to teach will disconnect from their traditional training. It's a period where they leave the monastery and they practice among lay people without any titles, without any robes, without any talks to give. But instead, it's a time of integration. Some, some call it a secret practice, helping seeing how their own fruits of practice hold up without that traditional structure of a monastery. Now, that being a lay priest myself, it wasn't quite applicable in my situation. You know, I had a day job. I had, of course, family life somewhat outside of the Zen Center. I had friends. But looking back, it would have been better to spend a little more time in at least second gear or third gear rather than going straight into turbo overdrive. It's not a bad thing overall because, you know, one of the things that I have learned over the decades in my Zen practice is to need to throw oneself into one's life. Kind of eager put with an eagerness. But it does have its downsides. And I want to share with you one of the downsides. Uh, I think back to a small group of us back in 2003, a small group of Zen folks, along with my two teachers relocated from Rochester, New York to Asheville, North Carolina to begin a small Zen community that's still there. It's flourishing Windhorse Zen community. And after a nine month search for the perfect property, we finally found a place to settle in 
Um, it was a beautiful house with about the same size property that we have here, but it was a house. It was not a Zen center. So I hit the ground running. I turned the garage, the two and a half car garage, it was a large garage into their Zendo. I set up a residential Zen training program. Um, we reached out to newspapers and began promoting ourselves as a group. And all the other myriad things that go along with setting up a new center. But one morning, some of you have heard this story before, I went out to run some errands. And as I went to my car, it wasn't there. It was gone. I looked around, I looked down at the lower road that went down to the shed, it wasn't there. I looked in the orchard where some of us had been parking and it wasn't there either. I began to panic. And so I called 911 and got the sheriff on the line. After a, about 20 seconds of explaining my situation, the dispatcher said, Mr. Swager, your car hasn't been stolen. It's been repossessed. I had forgotten to pay my car payment for four months straight. <laughs> I was so wrapped up in my tasks at the Zen Center that I had neglected my life. I often talk about that need for single-minded focus and practice, dedicating oneself without reservation, not giving up. Of course, for the most part, that's great advice. You know, it's, um, as one teacher says, this advice is as good as gold. But as another Zen saying goes, while gold dust is valuable, if it gets in your eyes, it will blind you. So sometimes it's better to step back before you step in. The last four months have been an attempt to do just that. So in addition to grieving my mom, regaining some health, I needed time away from giving talks, from meeting with students, from worrying about membership here and all the tasks that need to be done contributions, are we financially viable or not, checking in with my Zen peers. And so this summer we hit the road. We went on a number of trips. We went to the mountains, those same mountains actually that I lived in when my car was repoed. But at this time it felt good to breathe in that mountain air. The roads were familiar although the place, just like Pittsburgh, had grown. And when we were there, it was kind of like a trip down memory lane, except it felt fresh. It wasn't burdened by habit, by the busyness that makes it hard to appreciate those mountains. I'm sure you know the feeling, right? You can live in the most beautiful place in the world, but after a while, that beauty begins to fade and it just becomes 
any other place. We, we also went to the beach. And later in that summer, I spent some time on Martha's Vineyard with an old friend, a friend I hadn't seen in a long time, an old Zen friend, who actually I started a career in carpentry with some 25 years ago. It was good to see him. We picked up like no time had passed. And yet at the same time, something was different. We weren't young, fumbling guys anymore. We no longer had anything to prove. We both had matured. We both had deep wrinkles in our skin, in our faces. And that was a wonderful thing. It's nice to have nothing to prove. Sometimes you have to step back to step in. After that, I made my way to Rochester, New York, coming through Massachusetts into upstate. And as I approached, I felt an anxiety as I pulled into the Zen Center. As you know, I spent many years of my adult, young adult life in those buildings. So much joy, so much pain. I felt an anxiety about who I would see and how I would be seen. And yet, as it happened, the center was on summer recess. <laughs> and I had the buildings mostly to myself. The people I did encounter, though, for the most part, didn't know me. One person even asked if I wanted a tour. <laughs> I thought, sure, <laughs> why not? It was refreshing. I sat in the old Zendo where so many people have spent so much time. It has a power to it that some people have said that this Zendo has as well. I smelled the familiar smell of the dried grass from the tatami mats mixing with the incense that had perforated the really every pore of that place. It felt good. It was fresh. All my anxiety dropped away. Sometimes you have to step back step in. After a short visit to the city, I went out to the country center. I met with some old friends out there. I had spent a lot of time in the country center as well, building it. One of my friends had been made a Zen teacher last year and just began, began her time as co-abbot there. I think many of you know this, but there's a sort of changing of the guard that's happening in American Zen. Many of the baby boomers are beginning to retire and step back from teaching, and they make up the bulk of the American Buddhist landscape. <clears throat> I didn't know that my friend had any aspirations to be a teacher. But sometimes it's not about aspiration. It's not about choice. 
So I hadn't seen her in years. And to be honest, I didn't think she even had the personality for it. And yet, as we sat down and we reconnected, I saw something that I had never seen in her before. I saw her natural ability for leadership. I saw her dedication. But most of all, I saw her Dharma eye was clear and open. It was quite wonderful. And then just a few weeks ago, I made one last trip. As you know, I went to Japan. Sometimes there's something I've dreamed about for a lot of years. To be in a Buddhist country that is thousands of years old is powerful, to say the least. One of the things I learned when I was over there was that during the Tokugawa period, many centuries ago, they put into place a system where they registered every family with a local temple. It's called the Danka system. And since that time, more than 400 years ago, families have been visiting their same temple. I had the good fortune of visiting a temple and participating in a ceremony called Higan-e, which commemorates the annual autumnal equinox, which is, by the way, a national ceremony or national holiday in Japan. During that ceremony, as I was looking around, I saw kids running around and more than a couple of people dozing off during the ceremony. Uh, their ceremonies are more like marathons <laughs> than the sprints that we do here. So consider yourself lucky. <laughs> and in that middle of that ceremony, I felt this wave of gratitude for these old institutions for that Danka system, how they have preserved and passed along the teachings for hundreds and hundreds of years. A scale I think we know nothing about here in the United States. And yet at the same time, I felt some sadness as well. In Japan, I knew this going in, but it became visceral when I was there. In Japan, the spirit of Zen is dying. The monasteries are mostly empty. Young people aren't coming to practice. And lay practice has never been a thing. With exception of a few Zazen groups, Buddhism is mostly about ritual there. And so when I got back to the center here, and after some jet lag had passed, I again felt this wave of gratitude this time for being back here, for this practice here, for you. All of you who come for real understanding. Of course, we do do ceremonies, but people aren't coming here out of obligation, except for maybe if you've already signed up for a Zendo duty one morning and you wake up and go, I'd rather sleep in, <laughs> you know you're on the sign-up sheet.
I took a long walk when I got back on the Keenheen Trail here, and the trees felt more alive than they had in a long time. Another aspect of my sabbatical was parenting. To be honest, it was difficult to imagine being a parent even a few years ago. It wasn't a part of my life plan. When I took over here at the center, I didn't plan to be a dad at all. And so when it happened, there were a lot of mixed feelings. How would it impact my ability to teach? What about my oh-so-necessary morning coffee time in quiet? That has been a challenge. How would running the center affect my ability to be a dad? So the sabbatical was an opportunity to embrace that. This time was necessary. Sometimes you have to step back to step in. And so throughout my sabbatical, I kept coming back to a koan. Surprise, right? For all of you who know me. I have spoken about this koan before, but it took on some new dimensions this time. And I want to share a little bit about that before we end this morning. For, for new people or newer people, a reminder that koans are practices that we do. They are these little uh, snippets, these vignettes, like little comic, like a little comic book strip with a dialogue often between a monk and a master, sometimes just a short teaching. And a student takes that into their practice, meditation practice, and with the intention of coming to some kind of resolution, some kind of insight. So this case goes like this. Zen master Sekiso said, how will you take a step forward from the top of a hundred foot pole? Later, another master said, even though one who is sitting on top of a hundred foot pole has entered realization, it is not yet real. You must step forward from the top of the hundred foot pole and manifest your whole body throughout the world of the Ten Directions. And so the question is, how will you step forward from the top of the hundred foot pole? Originally, this koan was intended to address this issue of people getting stuck in their practice. People who have had some insight, some realization, some degree of seeing into this boundless, timeless nature of ours. You can imagine that a hundred foot pole is pretty high. It's above the noise of the world. There's nothing. It's clear calm, peaceful. You have a high vantage point. It's pretty nice. But that's not a place that's sustainable, right? It's an easy place to become comfortable with. This koan 
though, can be applied in a much wider way to me. It doesn't need to be about stepping off the pole of peacefulness or insight or emptiness. It can call us wherever we're stuck, wherever we've grown a little too comfortable, whether that's in our views, whether that's in our opinions or our roles. For me, that's what this koan has always been about. How are you going to step forward from that familiar place? Are you responding to what's in front of you? Or are you just skating along, digging your heels in, whatever that might be for you, or unwilling to change? It's asking us, are you willing to face that change that is always here? This is always the question for you as well as it has been for me. Are we willing to face reality as it presents itself? This can be a scary and challenging thing. It can be annoying, enraging, and sad to let go of what we know. It was a bit scary to step away from teaching, although not too much. The scariest thing was, what would happen to the Sangha? Would anybody stick around while I was gone? Some people did. Some people left. Some people stepped right up and took charge. So the sabbatical wasn't just a challenge or for me, it was for all of you as well. How does your practice hold up when circumstances change? My teacher, we often talk about when he was gone on vacation or other places, he would say, when the, mount, oh, when the cat's away, the mice will play. For me, the last six years has been great here. But things change, whether we like it or not. And for me, it's been slowly learning that breaks are okay. People will continue their practice or not, and that's okay. This practice continually reminds me that we're fully human and we're fully ordinary. And what distinguishes Zen from many other spiritual paths is its insistence that we stay in our ordinary lives. It reminds me of an old, another old Zen exchange that I'd like to share before we end. A monk asked Master Kigon, how does an enlightened one return to the ordinary world? Kigon replied, a broken mirror never reflects again Fallen flowers never go back to their branches. I'll read it again. How does an enlightened person return to the ordinary world? Reply, a broken mirror never reflects again. Fallen flowers never go back to their branches. This mirror is the mirror of wisdom 
It's where everything is reflected perfectly without bias. It is clear, it is bright, it is luminous, unstained. It's an experience that we can have in Zen to, and a necessary one to, to where all distinction, all bias falls away. But the thing is that doesn't last. It won't last. We all become burned out. We all get impatient. We all have needs and desires, even the enlightened ones. This is what Kigan is saying when he says, the broken mirror never reflects again. Zen is about facing the reality of our lives that constantly change. We can't put fallen flowers back onto a branch as much as we'd like to. So let's continue our practice of stepping forward, stepping in. The question is always, how are we going to do that? How are we going to step off the poles of our stuckness, of our ideas, of our opinions, of our judgments, of, our, of the future, of the past, of our identities, and just step into now.